We are all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible, or the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves will disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. Welcome to Life's Dirty Little Secrets. My name is Emma Waddington. I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm currently in Spain, but I'm usually in Singapore. And my lovely co-host is... I'm Chris McCurry, child psychologist in Seattle, Washington. And today we are very lucky to have my sister, my youngest sister, Anna Waddington, who is a nurse and is specialized in the field of violence reduction and has been working there for the last eight years. She has experience supporting vulnerable young adults and is particularly interested in improving healthcare outcomes for all children and young people. This includes delivering services that puts compassionate patient care at the core of its de delivery. She is founder and director of a not-for-profit, which is Your Stance, and it educates and works with young people affected by serious youth violence in London. And I'm incredibly proud to say that she won the Nurse of the Year Award in 2020. She is a qualified senior pediatric nurse with experience in emergency violence, but is particularly um, interested in the youth violence reduction. Thank you so much for having me both. I'm very excited to be here. Excellent. We're very happy to have you here. Today, we're going to be talking about moral injury. And moral injury is typically associated with combat experience, but recently it's being recognized in healthcare settings. The American Psychiatric Association recently put out uh, an article about moral injury. And what they said was, and I'm quoting, the scarcity of necessary equipment, the extent of se severe disease in such a wide population, and the inadequate staffing necessitating extensive service hours are among the situations and decision-making dilemmas that are impacting healthcare workers to such a degree that moral injury is becoming an emergent consequence of the pandemic. Can you tell us what is moral injury, Anna? I think it's funny that you just quoted something. It just feels so real to me, exactly what you just said. So to me, the moral injury is is actually an impact of the events that we're seeing every single day that is a complete betrayal of our own deeply held moral beliefs and values. And I think for me, and I was speaking about it with some colleagues just to hear their perspectives on it, is that every single person I know that went into healthcare went into healthcare because we care. And all of that is being attacked on a daily basis because of all the things that you've talked about, the lack of resources, the lack of funding, the immense amount of pain and suffering that people that we're looking after are having to go through every single day that we can't fix. And um, so that to me is, you know, the moral injury, a complete attack on our own or violates our own ethics as individuals. I, when I was reading about it, it was, I was thinking it's almost like a real conscience I think it's a new concept, fairly new, like 10 or so years, but it's this idea that um, it's betraying our own conscience. It's that discrepancy between what we think is right and what's actually happening. So can you give examples for you uh, that you sort of experienced as a moral injury? 
Yeah, I think every single day. I mean, I had to leave my last job because of the amount of moral injury that I was facing on a daily basis. And I think one was, you know, working with victims of violence, young people who'd been stabbed, uh, shot or seriously assaulted. And then I was discharging back into the same place where they'd been assaulted, where the chances of them being stabbed again was super high. But there was no other option because, you know, where I work, I work in the UK, we have a housing crisis, there's a, you know, a cost of living crisis, people are very poor, and the options of moving them to across the country, that it just wasn't an option. So that to me was a moral injury. I, I couldn't sit there any longer knowing that that was something that I was okay with. And I and I also like to say that I actually used to have to think, sit down and think, you know, how much control do I have in this situation you know what what can I do to protect these young people and it was felt like very little other than patching them up suturing their wounds up and you know holding their hand and making them feel like we cared but that was it so it really is not working to the standard that it that you should be working at that's part of it isn't it it's that that it sounds like it's it's being in a position where you can't do the job to the degree you would like to yeah totally yeah yeah and not getting the support that you need in order to do so. Yeah, not being able to process, I think, a lot of the things that we were having to see. Mm. I mean, I haven't even, we're not, we'll talk about the pandemic in a minute because that is a massive elephant in the room. But, you know, just the day-to-day work of working in a trauma center, and I think this might be something that resonates with people in America, is, you know, we see children coming in with serious injuries to their chest where we have to open their chest in the middle of a recess room and you're surrounded by family members who are screaming and you know that there's this child's not going to survive that and it just feels like a huge ripple effect of trauma across the community and you're part of that journey you know you're part of that traumatic journey for that family and it just doesn't feel good enough because you know that that young person would have come to the emergency department four times before they'd got that injury so we have managed to let them down in that entire space of that that person's life. And I don't know, it, it has like it t- it's taken a piece of me. Like that's why I had to lead to protect myself. Well, there are so many terms now that we're using to describe the stress that frontline workers are using or are experiencing. And uh, some of them are vicarious trauma yeah. where, you know, the bystanders are deeply affected by by what they're observing. There's uh, compassion fatigue, uh, where people are just done, and they just can't do it anymore. And then, of course, you know, burnout, which is a term that's been around for almost 50 years or so. How do you think these terms are related, or how do you think they might be a little different? God, they all seem to weave into each other, don't they? Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like I personally have experienced all of them. <laughs> Um, but speaking to a colleague just now, actually, she was saying, you know, the only way that I could cope is if I switch it off. That's the only way I could cope. But then I get to a point where I don't know when I've switched it off and when I've switched it back on again. And she feels like she doesn't seem to get it right. And so I think when you talk about compassion fatigue, it sort of filters into that vicarious trauma. How do we cope with how much trauma we're experiencing on a daily basis, well, we need to switch off the compassion. We have to, because mm-hmm. the bucket's full, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then that does eventually lead to burnout because you're trying so hard 
to be in the game, to be that person. I mean, I'm talking about nursing here, obviously, but I know I've got doctor friends who feel the same way where you're trying so hard to stay, stay in the game, be that person that everyone looks up to who doesn't, isn't impacted by what they're seeing. And eventually you will burn out, right? So they're all weave into each other. I think they do anyway. That's that's what a lot of people are speaking about as well is their, their overlapping concepts, including depression. Um, that could be part of it as well. Uh, I was reading an interesting book, uh, The End of Burnout by uh, Jonathan Malisic. I'm pronouncing his name properly. But in it, he, he said that burnout isn't a failure of productivity, but the continuation of productivity despite lacking the strength it takes to produce. I like that. Yeah. It just suggests that, you know, I'm showing up and I'm continuing to do what I'm doing, but it's I'm feeling very ineffective, uh, which is one of the key features of burnout. Just, uh, you know, whether I'm effective or not, I don't feel like I am. And that's, that's going to impact me. There's a term in organizational psychology, which is presenteeism. I think it's pronounced that way, that you just you're present, but you're not really present in terms of doing things to the degree you would like to. You just show up. Yeah, I think the, the term that was referred when I was going through burnout, a lot of what it felt like was I was watching a film. So whenever I was going into work, it didn't feel like I was present. I was just in this film that was sort of happening around for me. And that, in a way, impacted me more because I felt uh, so guilty that I wasn't present as well. And that just sort of added on to it all. And I think that's the complexity with this, isn't it? That when I think of moral injury, I think of it very differently to PTSD. Because in moral injury, the shame that you feel because you've done something that wasn't done, it's actually a moral reaction. You're you're feeling the shame because it was wrong to do it. Even though you had no choice, it didn't go with the values that you usually uphold. So it's different to PTSD. And I think that the, the tragedy with moral injury is that it is happening and then we feel bad about our shame, just like you're saying. Like we start to get burnout, we t- start to dissociate, we start to distance. That compassion fatigue feels a bit like a distancing, a bit of dissociation. Like I can't be fully in this anymore because I am feeling too upset or too tired or too overwhelmed with the situation, but there isn't an opportunity to recognize that the shame makes complete sense. Yeah. There isn't an opportunity in our, even in our line of work, if, you know, as psychologists, you know, if somebody has made an attempt on their life or we get an investigation, there's a deep sense of shame that maybe we should have done something more. And so there isn't an opportunity in organizations such as yours, Anna, or, you know, even in big hospitals, even in my my world, where we can actually express that things were done wrong and it shouldn't have happened. And that's where the moral injury comes, where we're expected to show up without the recognition that it was wrong, that it really shouldn't be this way. And um, and then there's all kinds of things that come up, including burnout. But, you know, people start, you know, trying to feel, to manage their emotions and control their emotions in many different ways. One of which being dissociation and some kind of attempt to distance, but perhaps even sort of substance abuse, perhaps even taking lots of time off. And 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 yet 
the issues doesn't get resolved. The core issue continues. And what do we see as contributors to this? I mean, I'm sure moral injury, vicarious trauma, all of these terms describe experiences, phenomena that have been around probably for centuries. Certainly, as long as there's been combat, people have probably been experiencing moral injury. But why is it becoming such a topic now? Is it merely the pandemic? Or is it, what, what's, what do you think Anna is contributing to this probably welcomed interest in moral injury and related concepts? I mean, I think the topic of mental health is is much more spoken about now. I think there's one that's one thing. We know we talk about mental health a lot more. There's more openness and willingness to talk about men's feelings. You know, I, I think in general, mental health as a topic is something that people are quite open to. I do think that the pandemic, and I don't want to put the pandemic to blame for everything, but it felt like the whole world was at war. A little bit like, you know, the Second World War or the Cold War. It just felt like we were all in it together. And it was such an assault on all of our ethics. You know, we were locked away and and couldn't see our loved ones. And for me, just thinking about what you were saying, the one thing that really sticks with me was the time when I had the patient who was dying and his eight children were literally outside the hospital, but I wasn't allowed to let them in to say goodbye. You know, and that sticks with me every single day. And I just held his hand whilst he died. And I just think that was hard. You know, that was really hard. And not just hard for me, but actually hard for his family that couldn't say goodbye to him. And I think that is an experience that is not single to me. You know, it's it's an experience that probably everyone, especially us, maybe even have ourselves or know of someone who's experienced it. So it's a shared experience. Um, the moral injury. And then, I don't know, I think as a society, we're exhausted, right? And it's just been a long journey of bad things. Everything is seems bad right now, doesn't it? You know, with the climate change and things are happening in the world. And it just feels like it was bound to happen. It was bound to be something that we were going to start talking about. I don't know what your experience is. Well, I think, uh, as you were pointing out, that the whole world was thrown into this chaotic and very frightening experience. And yeah, unfortunately, we didn't pull together quite as much as we might have, particularly here in the States, where it became a political issue. But yeah, it's it's been, it's been very stressful for a long time. My son is 29 years old, and, and he says, you know, ever since he was like eight or nine years old, you know, ever since the Twin Towers, the 9-11 attack, you know, his life has been so stressful. And then you compound that with things like global warming and then the pandemic. He's just like, man, this is uh, quite an era I've been born into. So we're all, we're all feeling it and we're all, we're all quite anxious. Yeah. I think just to add on to the facts about moral injury, I know of a lot of colleagues who feel quite shamed about using the term almost like an imposter syndrome because and I hear it a lot when I'm speaking about you know the moral injury of the pandemic and the moral injury of having really underfunded social services all that kind of stuff and they say but 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 we haven't actually seen someone be blown up 
you know, we haven't had to like fight a war that we don't believe in. And I said, but we didn't believe in a lot of the decisions we had to make during the pandemic, you know, whether we give this person a ventilator or the other person, you know? Well, an eight ounce glass that's full is as full as a 12 ounce glass that's full. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's, one should be cautious about comparing suffering, you know, cause sure, you know, of course there are people in the world that are, are suffering mightily, whether it's in Sudan or trying to cross barbed wire to get into the Southern United States or whatever it may be. And my Wi-Fi is being bulky and I'm complaining. I mean, we, we, you know, I, I hate that term first world problems, but it's yeah. true, but you know, suffering is suffering. And yeah, pain yeah. is pain. I think we need to be compassionate toward pain. And as, as therapists, you know, we have to do this all the time where we may not particularly agree with why somebody is feeling the way they're feeling. We may think that it's actually quite trivial, uh, mm-hmm. particularly those of us who work with children and adolescents. And they're in pain. And we have to set aside our, our own ideas about how I would feel in that situation and and really empathize and, and be compassionate about how they're feeling in the situation. And I'm also wondering if this is where it's important to distinguish moral injury and PTSD. Because I think what people I don't think in, in, in our world we have enough of a conversation around the difference. Because PTSD is obviously trauma and results, you know, from fear of something terrible happening or being in a position where you think you're, you know, you're going to be harmed or you're going to die. Mm -hmm. Um, Whilst moral injury is really this injury due to us not being able to do things to our standard uh, breaking a value, it's, it's really that moral compass that is being broken. And so it's quite different. And so I think when when as clinicians or those in the helping profession, we feel a moral injury, you know, we feel hurt, upset, uh, deeply ashamed because we've, we've made a mistake perhaps, or we haven't been able to support someone to the degree that we wanted to. That shame is really important actually, because it shows us that we care and it's critical to our ability to do our job. If we didn't care, we couldn't be in this work. And that's why it hurts so badly. Um, and I think that's the confusion sometimes in think of the profession that because it's hurting because we care as opposed to it's hurting because we, we thought we were going to die, it doesn't feel like enough. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, sort of by definition, if you're going by the, you know, the diagnostic manual, uh, PTSD has to have that fear component, you know, which, which could be the experience of the person who's waiting to see whether or not a loved one is going to survive, you know, a traumatic, you know, event such as a stabbing or a, a car accident or something like that. But for us, you know, who kind of that day-to-day grind of feeling inadequate, and feeling helpless. Yeah, there's there's that guilt and shame. But as you say, Emma, it, it relates to our values. And if we're just phoning it in, I mean, I suppose we could do that. And that goes back to what Anna was saying about, you know, being more kind of dissociated or robotic about your job as a survival mechanism. But you can't you just can't do that for very long, or at least you won't be very effective at it. Well, no, especially not in, in our profession, because being compassionate and caring is is part of the role, right? 
you know, you're you're at least with my previous job of working in the emergency department, you know, I'm a pediatric nurse and I have really scared parents. And it's my job to provide them the compassion and support so that they feel safe in my presence and they know that I'm gonna look after their really sick child, right? Mm-hmm. If I go in there robotically, that's not gonna work, I don't think. I mean it didn't. Right. Well, they need to feel it. Yeah. You can say the words and you can go through the motions, but if people don't sense that you're there giving it your all, even if your all is not not that much that day, you're in it, and uh, and that's there's something healing in and of itself. Yeah, it's hard because you can't really in when you're recruiting for a particular profession such as healthcare you can't really put in the criteria the recruitment criteria that you must be caring you can't expect that from someone but they almost do right and it's the same thing as a psychologist you know i i I don't know because i'm not a psychologist but i'm assuming that it's expected that you have to have a level of compassion you have to be able to tailor it correct oh yeah i mean (laughs) Well, so much, and the research shows that a large portion of the variance, as we say, or, or a large contributing factor to the success of psychotherapy is the relationship between the client and the therapist. Yeah. And, a, and a lot of that is nonverbal and uh, tone and just things that are hard to teach and, and hard to even describe, uh, but compassion and caring are, are, you know, central to that and how that's conveyed in the, in the therapy room. And empathy, I guess, as well. Absolutely. Empathy, right. And, Which uh, you can't learn. <laughs> well, you can develop. <laughs> as they say, some things can be learned, but they can't be taught. Yeah. And that's the complexity, isn't it? In order to do this job really well, you need to care. And yet caring means that you will experience deep shame when things go wrong and you will and it will hurt a lot. Yeah. Well caring means being vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an expiry date, possibly, if you care too much. I was always told that I cared too much, that I carry my my emotions on my sleeve or you know, I carry my heart on my sleeve. But then at the same time I was always really loved by my patients. For caring. So it's it a difficult place to be as a nurse because you're like, well, if I care too much, I'm going to get hurt. But if I don't care enough, then the patients aren't supported. So what's the right thing to do then? Well, so how do we do this? It's really complicated, especially in, in you know, countries where things are, resources are low. And that's the, the, the complexity here. Um, I think for me, having this conversation, what's important about this conversation is to have a an opportunity to explore what it really is like. Because I don't think this conversation is is as open um, within different healthcare sectors as it should be. And I think because it often involves shame, it often involves feeling really bad. Uh, and, and interestingly, what Anna just said, you know, you feel bad about having to do, you know, like you were saying, not being able to um, support your patients the way you want to, maybe making 
moral injury by an omission, by, you know, not having done something that you should have, or, you know, whatever is happening that doesn't feel right and doesn't feel in line with the standards you want. And then on top of that, you have shame about feeling bad. Mm -hmm. So the shame just keeps expanding. And that's why I think it's so important to start talking about it and recognizing that it comes with the job. It doesn't come in spite of it, it will come with it. it that you will never be um, free from feelings of shame as soon as you care. And so if, I think it's important to start using this term moral injury more and to kind of normalize it. It's because the shame you feel is because you care. It's because it's so important to you. It's part of the human you are. I remember us having a conversation about a situation Anna faced a few months ago and she was feeling, you know, horrible because it was incredibly difficult. And she said to me, why do I feel so bad? And I remember thinking, because you're human, you know, that's, that's the only issue here is that you're a human and not a robot. And so, and that happens in, in our profession all the time when we don't do, we don't have the outcomes we want with clients or clients drop out of therapy or, you know, clients go back to their, their spouse that they shouldn't be going back to because life is not working out for them that well or whatever happens, you know, we feel deep shame like we've done something wrong. And it ultimately is because we really care. And so I think this conversation is the beginning of what we do about it, I think. Not it, this conversation per se, <laughs> although that would be wonderful. Um, but the conversations about moral injury in the healthcare sector and being able to put a name to this experience and definitely having more support. Because I know through the pandemic, there was very little support for you, Anna, and for many other doctors um, and nurses across the globe that were expected to just keep going in spite of everything that was happening. And it still happens today because resources continue to get lower and lower in community settings. Yeah, I really love that you mentioned that situation that I had and it was with a young person because it was a light bulb moment for me because you gave me, you know, the right to care. You took away the shame for caring. And then what I did afterwards, which I don't know if I told you, was I went upstairs to the ward and I said to all the nurses, hey guys, that was actually really hard for me. I found that really challenging and emotionally trivial how do you guys feel? And I just ran a quick debrief with everyone and they all shared the same thing. And they all said, usually we feel really ashamed about feeling this way because it felt like we should be okay with this, but actually it was really hard. And I, I thought that was helpful. And I think it's just what you said, you know, we need to normalize it. We need to talk about it. And I'll never forget an experience I had when I went off sick for burnout following a really traumatic experience uh, that, you know, it was horrible, horrible for myself and for the patient. And I remember seeing a really, really important high-flying consultant in the street and they were like, oh, what are you doing out on the street? You should be working. I said, oh, this happened. And they went, oh, those things never affect me. And I thought, oh my God, I'm such a bad person. Like, you know, they see all these horrible things in this job and they never get impacted. And what's wrong with me? How can I be impacted by something like this? And my sister was like, well, no, you just a feeling. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. You're not a, soci you're not a sociopath. So uh, yes. uh, <laughs> so that's that's a good thing. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, who are the people that are like immune to moral injury? 
that's, yeah, a that's, that's that's a whole topic i know yeah. you could find a sociopath to bring on <laughs> the podcast yeah well, are they immune or are they too ashamed to admit that it's hard you know are they just running on that on that wave of nothing impacts me and just being robotic like we said i i think as with ptsd as with a number of these things just talking about it mm. is uh, a great start. Mm. It is. And making sense of it, just like you said, Anna, and I think that's so well said, is that that we are just humans and that, you know, that ability to go and check in with others in your team and go, hey, that was really triggering. How are you guys feeling? And getting support, that peer support is so important that even if it's just a few minutes to have to, because you guys understand each other so much better because in that moment you could share that experience and it's the same yeah, in, in most teams. The problem is if it's not a shared experience, if somebody is not having the same feelings, then that's more complicated. But even then, um, to be open about that. But I think making it a baseline that you do debrief. So I don't know what it's like in America, but in, in where I work, in the healthcare system that I work in, debriefing is something that is recommended, but it's not a compul like it's not compulsory. You don't need to debrief everything. Mm. And actually those who do the debriefing are doing it on top of all the other jobs that they do. So I'm part of a debrief team. But I also work 12-hour shifts and I'm very busy. And, you know, if I get called to do a debrief, I probably can't do it. Let's be honest. And so actually, I personally think it should be something that is embedded in all healthcare and is offered to everyone and is a team that is, you know, doing it as in like that's their only job. Mm. Because it just it feels wrong that during the pandemic, we went through this really horrible thing. We had a lot of money was pumped into, at least in the, in the UK, pumped into like psychological help for healthcare professionals. We was, it was amazing. Like we had all these psychologists that sort of came in like warriors. I do worry about how they are doing as a result of everything. But, you know, they came in as warriors. There was all this help and then it just got stripped away. And you think, but wait, the issue hasn't finished. You know, we've, we've got vicarious trauma every day. Um, and I just think it should be embedded. We should be debriefing. And you're right, not everyone needs a debrief, but the option should be there, right? Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. It's reminding me of the concept of psychological safety that's now kind of going all over the corporate world. Not that I've had some really interesting conversations where people go, yes, yes, we are psychologically safe in this environment, aren't we? <laughs> I always think it's a really funny situation but it feels a bit like that this idea that is are we as an organization prioritizing the ability to have they call them candid really candid conversations about what it really is like and it sounds like it that's something that's also needed in the healthcare despite the fact that you have you know massive empaths um, people who really care deeply there is almost not permission to speak openly about the pain, perhaps because the vicarious trauma is so prevalent. You don't want to then upset somebody else because you know they're also holding a lot of pain and difficulty. But the reality is that um, it is easier when we all 
talk more openly and we all support, especially given as it's a shared experience quite often. Well, and it's, you know, beyond beyond the healthcare setting. I mean, teachers are experiencing a lot of this burnout as well as, you know, moral injury and probably some vicarious trauma and definitely some compassion fatigue as well. So there needs to be effort put into supporting them. I'm sure I'm not familiar with that, but I know during the pandemic, this was uh, quite difficult for teachers, uh, as well as the parents who were stuck at home with their kids doing Zoom school, trying to be teachers as well. Um, we, We were, you know, trying to manage all that. And even in the corporate world, uh, there's a gentleman named David White, W-Y-T-T-E, I think his name is spelled David White, and he's a poet and a corporate consultant. And he goes into corporations and talks about keeping your soul alive while working for a giant corporation. And he, and he gives lectures and does you know trainings and workshops about you know how not to get burned out and uh, feel depleted and depersonalized working in a giant corporation. So efforts are being made, but it, it, some of it could just be window dressing where, you know, saying, you know, it's sort of, or sort of it's a fashionable thing to do this year. It's like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do a workshop and, you know, take care of everybody and then we'll forget about it because it's not, you know, good for our you know bottom line. But yeah, again, it's it's getting out there and, and making people more aware of these issues, and hopefully, it will kindle into something. Because I think it's so true what you've just said, Chris. Is that you know the window dressing versus actually being willing to get uncomfortable? Because these conversations are uncomfortable. Be it in a sort of corporate organization, if if you are willing to uh, be open about how you're feeling, and you want to really hear people's feelings about situations, then you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And the same if we are going to start having more open conversations or more briefing, we're going to have to sit with the pain of the other person as they share their experience. And we have to give them that permission if we want to do it right. But that means you're also going to have to feel some big feelings too. Sure. So somebody's going to have to debrief the debriefing team. (laughs) And, And it goes on, exactly. But it's also, let's be honest and talk about the elephant in the room in that these sort of professions are probably one of the lower paid professions. And it's also valuing the staff, you know, having more resources, more staff. We're all working at capacity, not just emotionally, but also physically working at capacity and things are getting harder. You know, at least in the UK, the injuries are getting worse. The, the amount of people coming to emergency departments is increasing exponentially. I've never worked a summer where it's so busy in the emergency department where we have people piling up in corridors because there's no beds in the hospital because there's nowhere to discharge to. And it's just a conveyor belt of negativity. And I think we need to be honest that there's also that. We can't fix the moral injury if the staffing crisis doesn't get fixed. But who's going to want to do a healthcare profession you know, who's going to want to go to, to university to study nursing when they see this in the news mm-hmm. with strikes at, happening all the time? I, I know in America you're not having strikes right now, but it might happen soon. You never know. Oh, oh we have them not infrequently. And they're, they're certainly during the pandemic, there, were a, there was a lot of 
concern about nurse burnout and uh, staffing ratios and and you know that's ongoing but you know it's you know particularly for for mental health it just doesn't pay you know not you know it, not like orthopedic surgery you know so the hospitals are are not investing in taking care of or you know or supporting you know primary care or mental health or behavioral health or, or you know whatever you want to call it and and having value to the individual right i don't at least in the uk I, many times i've seen nurses be pulled off of courses because they need to cover the shop floor you know they need to come and work and you think how many times can someone's education be impacted, you know, and how many times is that going to have an impact on that individual's well-being and, and sense of worth, right? Because all of it contributes. If you're not being developed, that impacts on your moral injury because you don't feel like you have the skills, you know, to manage a situation. And, and just to add to that, I think on the flip side, at least my profession, we need to see nursing less as an identity and try and find ourselves hobbies outside of healthcare because I think the problem with me especially nursing is so part of who I am you know I get introduced by my friends as oh this is Anna she's a nurse you know it is my identity and I think that all feeds into the moral injury because you can never really disconnect you know you're walking on the street oh Anna someone's having a seizure can you help them or oh Anna someone's you know it's just like constant i feel like i'm in a video game well it's true i mean when we're we're doing occupations regardless of what they are that are inherently depleting you know we we need outside sources to get replenished you know i remember talking to people and saying i'm, I'm a child psychologist and they said oh you must love children you know it's like <laughs> well you know sometimes you know <laughs> but uh, sometimes they're a real pain you know, I mean, yes, I got a lot of satisfaction out of my job, but I couldn't count on it to make me feel good. You know, I had to look for other sources and uh, other ways of, of getting replenished. Yes. Yeah. That reminds me of the conversation we have with Yael Schoenbrunn. I was just thinking parenting is, is part of that as well. You know, you, yeah. can't, you can't expect your kids to, to restore you. It's, it's not a two-way street. Yes. And I guess that's it. It's, she was talking about, you know, how um, having lots of roles can support you. And it's, it sounds like when it comes to these very difficult, depleting roles, having other roles that can give you or other important pieces in your life that can give you a sense of mastery and satisfaction are going to help you with, yeah, help to support you. And it's protective against burnout. Mm-hmm. And it also is protective in a way that you, if you're prioritizing many things, you have to really think about the time that you can dedicate to any one thing. Mm -hmm. well, I was just going to say that one of the things that, you know, we talk about in acceptance and commitment therapy is content within context. And if, if being a nurse or being a psychologist or being a teacher or being a parent is your entire context, then you've got nothing, you know, you're just immersed in it and uh, there's no respite. But if, if those roles are content within a larger context of my bigger life, I'm also this and I'm also that, and I do this and I do that as well, then that allows us to, you know, get a little breathing room and not feel quite so suffocated by 
this demanding role that we have that becomes everything, all-encompassing. It's just reminding me about you know what Yael said is that you get rest in different roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, feels really you know in line. You know, if you have something else to be doing outside of your nursing role, you can get rest from nursing even when you're doing something that even could be quite demanding. She had a great example about these Israeli soldiers that used to switch between, I can't remember what the second role was, but both as demanding, going to war was their second role, I think. And they got rest and they actually, it meant that they could do their second role better. Mm-hmm. So it allows you to, yeah, rest and, and, and prepare and it protects you. Well, you need to replenish, right? You need to recharge that battery that you're depleting every single day on a shift. And it's so hard, especially a 12-hour shift. And sometimes you need to have a frank conversation with yourself and say, well, actually, it's okay that I can't do that anymore. And I do a different type of nursing. But at the same time, on your rest days, you need to respect the rest days. I mean, I know I am guilty of it, less so now because I'm more careful, but I know of friends who just check their emails every single day, even on holiday. You know, you need to have boundaries with yourself because otherwise you will just explode. Like you will just burn out. You ha- There's no other route, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you need to do things that give you joy. I'll never forget, like when I went to therapy for my burnout, she said, right, we need to find things that really give you joy. You know, like really fun things, not adrenaline things, because she didn't want me to be adrenaline, lots of adrenaline junkies, but fun things. People you love, people who make you laugh, go and watch the favorite film, go and eat your favorite food, just joy. That's what she prescribed me. And it really helped. So one of my favorite uh, definitions of resilience is struggling well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think sometimes... You know, that's that's just what we do. We hold these things lightly and, and we soldier on, but we also get the support that we need and talk to people and do our replenishing activities, find our joy, because uh, this, this is hard. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that the kind of just thinking about this wrapping up, um, I was listening to a podcast about moral injury and it was talking about, you know, when you have a cut – that's infected, uh, you can't blame the cut for being infected. You need to think about why it hasn't healed. And so it feels like, you know, when we have this experience of moral injury, when we're feeling deep pain, when we're feeling the burnout, we need to think about what we need to heal and get better instead of blaming the feelings. The feelings are there for a reason. They're trying to tell us something really important. Yeah. And I think something that helped me personally was actually writing down what my core beliefs and values were so that I could see what was being triggered Mm. and almost understand it a little bit. You know, I didn't really understand why I was in so much pain when someone was hurting themselves or self-harming. I didn't understand it. What was it? And it was all my beliefs about how we should have protected them before they got to that stage. You know, we should have been better as clinicians in avoiding, preventing this from happening. So like writing down those core values helped me. Excellent. Yeah, and I, and that does get back to what you were saying, Emma, about our pain, however it's manifesting itself, whether it's shame or sadness or whatever it might be, uh, is directly re- related to those values and those core beliefs and the things that you know, brought us into this work to begin with. Yeah. Thank you, Anna. This has been very moving. 
Yeah, very moving. Oh, thank you. So important. Such an important conversation to be having. And yeah, hopefully it helps someone out there to think about their experiences and take better care of themselves because these are really important jobs. And I'm so grateful that there are people like Anna in this world. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a joy to talk about moral injury. I'm very passionate about it. Yes, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at lifesdirtylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See See you you then. then.